I'm Andy Budd and you're listening to The Progression Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to the second Progression Podcast. As makers, we're great at designing and building products and experiences that people love, but one thing that we still can't do effectively is design our own careers. With the help of regular contributors and special guests, I'm digging into why that is, tackling questions around managing versus making, missing manager tools, soft and hard skills and training, uh, compensation, and navigating the new job that's right for you. This episode, I'm talking to Andy Budd, founder of design agency Clearleft, outspoken social media presence, and organiser of several design conferences here in the UK, including Leading Design Next Week. I get Andy onto some of his favourite subjects, issues with designer titles, building an ownership mindset for your own career, the differences between a designer's work at agencies versus in-house, and issues with bringing a new generation of designers into the market and more senior design positions. Remember, you can contribute to this podcast. If you have a question about design careers, progression, or personal growth, get involved in the Slack community at progressionpack.com chat. I'm also on the lookout for interesting people to talk to on the pod, so do get in touch if you are or know someone who might be a good guest. Finally, please do check out progressionpack.com if you're planning to create a better progression framework for your design team. The product will never be better value than it is today, so do your team a favour and save a few hours by getting me to help. Okay, enough of my waffle, on with the interview. Thanks for being on the podcast, Andy. Uh, if you would like to introduce yourself and Clearleft and, and what you do. Absolutely. So my name is Andy Budd. I'm one of the co-founders of a digital design agency in Brighton called Clearleft. We started around 2005 and we were arguably the first or at least one of the first uh, agencies to dedicate ourselves to the practice of user experience design in the UK. Uh, We used to run a little uh, web digital design conference called Deconstruct, which was the first sort of design-led conference in the UK back in 2005. That lasted for 10, 11 years. I started um, UX London, which is the first and kind of sort of probably main UX conference in the UK um, about sort of uh, 10 years ago. So UX London is 10 years old. And more recently, I started a conference aimed at design leaders um, based on lots of conversations with people such as yourself over coffee around some of the challenges that they were facing moving from being a practitioner to being a manager or design leader. So that's been going two or three years. That's really good. Um, in terms of the company Clearleft, these days, we mostly work with kind of sort of well-established brands. And a lot of our work is involved supporting those design leaders um, to help them kind of grow and improve their teams. So a lot of our work is coming in, running design sprints, um, getting new projects kicked off, embedding with teams and putting senior practitioners in their teams to get the teams kind of really working and gelling and kind of learning and, and progressing. And then often... Um, going and helping design leaders with things like progression frameworks and governance strategies in order to do the kind of design ops um, element of their their offering because often a lot of design leaders are so stuck for time and budget that they don't have the time to do that themselves and so you know we help them kind of get everything moving and basically our whole philosophy around Clearleft is trying to improve the practice of digital design um, and sometimes that's with clients actually delivering projects but more increasingly these days it's about helping design leaders and digital leaders you know get all their ducks in the row fantastic yeah I, uh, on leading design i mean it is it's i've been the last two years and it has been one of the kind of more uh, pivotal points in my year in terms of learning and uh, the you know i, I don't want to uh, 
uh, suck up to you too much, Andy, but it's a unique atmosphere actually at that conference in that there's a real atmosphere of, uh, I suppose, closeness and openness uh, and candor. Mm. So it's a really, you've, you've cultivated something pretty special. Oh, there. thank you. I mean, I think just, I think one of the reasons for that is kind of if you're a junior or mid level designer and you're speaking at a conference, you know, part of the reason you're doing that is to kind of project a, a sense of confidence and you know a, an ability because maybe you're looking to build your own personal brand to get that next job that next gig that next kind of um, advancement I think if you're coming and speaking at leading design you're pretty much at the top of your game you know you're probably a head director or VP of design you're really not doing it in order to kind of progress yourself because you're kind of where you need to be and that actually affords a level of honesty and openness that that you don't see elsewhere so i think if you're you know if you've been doing it for 20 years you sort of have the permission and authority to say well this is what i don't do well and actually i think one of the one of the sort of the classic models of a really good leader is to show vulnerability if you're somebody that is so egotistical that you can only project everything you do is right in front of your group in front of the people you're leading you're going to create a environment where people are really really afraid to fail and as we know actually that's the opposite of what you want you want to create a environment of of psychological safety and so being open and honest in front of a big crowd of people is a great way to kind of do that and practice that so i think that's one of the reasons why leading design comes with so much kind of openness and honesty and people are willing to kind of be critical of all their sort of past failings yeah. Do you find that outside the, the conference with your clients that one of the things that you're coaching quite often is that ability to feel comfortable being vulnerable? Um, I mean, we ClearLeft don't directly um, coach leaders in that sense, um, but we do work with a bunch of really amazing coaches like Julia Whitney, who is a, is a past speaker um, a leading design who used to be the head of um, UX at uh, the BBC and now has become a, a kind of a coach. And she's actually got you know specific coaching training, and a lot of what she does is around um, working one on one with leaders. You know, in like hour, two hour sessions to kind of work on their own. Um, sort of internal behaviours and practices in their own careers. I guess the kind of coaching we do um, with our clients is much more around sort of the performance of the team rather than the performance of an individual. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't really do sports. I'm not a big sports person. But the way I describe what we do is almost like um, David Beckham going to kind of LA Galaxy. You know, you've got to play a coach here. You put a really, really amazing person on the team and that encourages the rest of the team to step up it develops new skills it shows them how to behave in certain situations and you know if you've got a really good you know sports team coach as well that sports you know the the coach of the sports team isn't necessarily looking at the the sort of the psychological or inner turmoil that the individual team members are going through although that might be a part of it but it's more around kind of you know teaching skills and practices and drills and putting the right environment in place for that team to succeed. So we're more on the sports coaching side of things, I think, than the um, life coaching side. But I think right. all of those things are really important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, this it actually leads me on to uh, you tweeted recently about an owner's mindset, and it, it kind of. Um, I mean, we can get onto Twitter a bit more later. <laughs> um, you're definitely entertaining on Twitter and, and um, brave on Twitter, which is something that. I suppose I'm learning more about how to do and, and trying to be mm. braver. But uh, your, your specific tweet about an owner's mindset, and I'll, I'll actually just read it out. Um, I think I have it here. 
Uh, the secret to a fulfilling career is to tweet is to tweet is to treat every job like it was your own company. Take action, make improvements, care deeply, uh, and that resulted in uh, 590 likes, a lot of replies and conversations off the back of it. Uh, it it um, resulted in some some strong opinions. It's, it's fair to say, hmm. but uh, off the off the back of that tweet and, and and following on from it, that was a few days ago. I'm just wondering if you would like to expand on that and, and what you meant by that. Absolutely. I mean, one of the challenges of Twitter is, first of all, there's a small number of characters, even though it's been increased, but nuance gets um, gets destroyed. And also, it's really easy for people to either accidentally or maybe deliberately misinterpret what you're saying and then use it as an excuse to kind of poke you with. Um, I think you'd have to be pretty, either pretty stupid or pretty low in your appreciation of me to think that what I'm saying is you run around your company walking into boardrooms demanding to fire people um that you you demand that you get to set your own salaries and 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 look at the books and and generally behave in a way that people I think have negative associations towards ownership you know and and that was a lot of the pushback is like well if I behave like that in my company I'd get fired um, there's a difference between behaving like an owner and having an ownership mindset. Um, an ownership mindset basically means, you know, if you see if you see litter on the floor, rather than walking past it, assuming someone else will deal with it, assuming that it's the, you know, that, that someone else in your studio or the cleaner will, will pick it up, pick it up, you know, have pride in your work, have pride in your environment and treat the place like it was your own. Um, you know, it, it's kind of similar, like my, my parents used to give me this sort of... Um, uh, uh, the phrase do as you would be done by like behave in the way that you would like other people to behave to you and that's a similar thing like if you're being employed by somebody you want to try and behave in a way that you would like them to sort of behave back to you and I think ownership is key um, unfortunately I see a lot of people understandably who are in in crappy jobs in jobs where they um, are trying to push things forward but are, are constantly sort of frustrated and so again you know I realize that this is not always possible but again it's kind of why it's a mindset not a you know not necessarily a a kind of behavior it's an attitude towards approaching life and to be honest like you know this this whole thing was sparked by i was listening to a podcast um in which uh, jamie oliver was being interviewed and he said when he was like an intern effectively you know a kp at a, a kind of a one of his first restaurants um that he worked at um, he he was told by one of his bosses, you know, while you're here, the best way to advance is to, you know, behave like you really care about this job to the point that you're owning it. So if you see something that's spilled on the floor, you know, grab a broom and sweep it up. And I just thought that was such a positive um, uh, attitude. And, and he sort of, you know... Um, claimed that attitude was one of the things that that kind of drove him to where he is today while everybody else would step away and kind of not take responsibility he sort of stepped in and took ownership and you know it might not be right by everybody this is the other thing i think one of the challenges on twitter first of all i mean this tweet was was an inspirational bumper sticker of a tweet if you see you know an inspirational bumper sticker you know don't get overly worked up you know because there's obviously nuances there um also one of the challenges i think that twitter gets really angry if the advice you give or the thing you say doesn't apply to everybody in all situations and unfortunately like you know not everybody will be able to develop an ownership mindset not everyone will be in a position where it's possible um but the ability to practice it and practice caring deeply and caring so much about a company that you you 
you, you put you know as much effort in as you can it's gonna it's gonna get noticed hopefully in a positive way um and a lot of this comes back to there's these ideas of um these sort of accountability ladders and i don't know if you've seen it it's, it's a graphic you know seven or eight runs and on the bottom of the accountability ladder is is blame. You know, when something goes wrong in your organisation, you look to blame other people. Maybe it's your co-workers because they're being lazy. Maybe it's your boss because they're an idiot. Maybe it's the environment. You know, it's really easy to kind of get into a blame culture. But as you walk up that ladder, you go from, you know, from, from blaming everybody to observing the problems and understanding them, to going and asking for help, to actually... Um, taking ownership of the problems and then going back to your bosses and say, look, I've spotted this problem. I fixed it. What do you think? And being someone that hires people, I much prefer to have to work with colleagues that um, if possible, and this is kind of one of the things you, you want to look on in, in progression, is move people from a mindset that this is somebody else's problem to moving them to, an, to a mindset where they have the agency, the ownership and the the safety in order to make those kind of decisions and then come back to you and say, look, this is what I've done. And it might be they've done something wrong, but but that's not a problem. The fact that they took ownership is 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 a wonderful thing. And I'd rather people I'd rather people, you know, take ownership of things and, and make changes and then come back and say, look, I've done this, what do you think? Than just kind of constantly leaving it for other people to pick up. Because ultimately, particularly in small teams, there is nobody else. There is no big brother organization that's going to somehow swoop in and, and make these changes. It's just the people working on the team. And if you don't do it, nobody else will. And also, if you don't do it, you're modelling bad behaviour for everybody else. And so, yeah, you know, that, that's the kind of the, the ownership mindset that I think we should be you know, all trying to work towards. Right. And of course, you know, some of the excuses are, oh, but that's easy, you are an owner of a company. And yeah, that's true. You know, I can't, I can't defend or change my life experiences. Um, but as somebody that employs people... I know what I'm looking for in terms of behaviour. And if you are employed by somebody, there's a really good chance that the person you're employed by is looking for that kind of sort of behaviour as well. So it felt like it was good advice at the time. Yes, yes. There's the ownership mindset, which means that you're, you'll engender trust amongst your colleagues and, and people will see you taking responsibility, uh, rain or shine for your work and and. and the, the other side of it, which you lightly touched on there, and I suppose which is of particular interest to me, is ownership over your own destiny on a slightly uh, longer timeline. So, and, and definitely some of the comments to your, your tweet were, were saying, well, uh, if my company isn't listening to me or if my company is badly run or, or, or badly managed or I'm badly managed or I'm not given opportunities, then it's impossible for me to have an ownership mindset. And I think... Where you were pushing back on that, and, and where I would agree is, is your ownership mindset doesn't have to be constrained to um, your current situation in your company, and, and actually taking ownership over your the skills you learn and how you project yourself uh, onto the world, and then and how you make decisions about your future is is very important as well, and not leaving not leaving the path you walk down to be decided by someone else. Absolutely. I mean, I think I, I think there's two things that are so, so inter, intertwined, intertwinkled there. I think the first thing is, in any given situation, you can't control other people's reaction to the situation. You can't control the way the organisation is structured or who the boss is, etc. All you can control is your behaviour in that situation. Um, and so it's understandable why people want to externalise things. And actually, one of the things I sort of learnt from 
from that tweet is particularly Western culture, we externalise things. We take the problems and we put them on the people and they say, it's not my problem, it's their problem. And, and it's kind of a fundamental psychological way of protecting one's own ego. Because I can imagine like, if you spent your whole time thinking that everything in the world was your fault, you would, you would find yourself in a really psychologically um, sort of challenging place. But if you kind of look to maybe Eastern sort of um, psychology, if you look to um, what happens in Japan, let's say, a lot of people who are working in Japan have a mindset that basically is like, I c- all I can do is be the best I possibly can. I have no control over my external environment. I maybe don't have control over my boss or where I work, etc., etc. But what I can do is dedicate my life to making my approach and my ability to do my work the best possible. And that is an internal um, focus rather than an external focus. And so I guess my tweet was really focused around what you can control as an individual and not the rest of the world, because you can't control the rest of the world. And I think most of the pushback was about the rest of the, the, rest of the world is big and broken. But if you, if you focus there, then you kind of defeat yourself because you, you give all agency to other. You give all agency outside of yourself. And I think humans have the amazing ability to have a rich internal life, to, to grow mm. as individuals, um, you know, in, in a, a, a variety of different situations. So I guess that was one point. To your point around kind of taking ownership of your own career, absolutely. I think, you know, there are lots of industries where you can't do that. There are lots of backgrounds where you can't do that. I came from a working class background whereby, you know, I didn't have um, people around me pretty much outside of working in manual labor and so you know my horizon for what was possible was relatively small and also i think for most people that come from a working class background like if you if you kind of do a good job and you make good you kind of don't want to kind of rock the boat whereas obviously if you come from a a privileged background your ability to take risks your ability to you know go to higher education that is maybe more costly but surrounds you with great opportunities is much bigger so i think you know understandably like your background and your situation is gonna have a massive effect on how much you can push against that but ultimately most of the people who work in digital at the moment are pretty privileged um it's a buyer's market there are far more buyers out there than there are sellers and by that i mean there are far more people looking to employ talent than there are talent available and this is one of the reasons why I'm seeing people switch jobs maybe every 18 months. And if you're in San Francisco, switching jobs every nine months. Because for a lot of us, um, the skills that we have developed over the last 5, 10, 20 years are in demand. And if we find ourselves in a situation where we are not learning and growing and delivering value, there's a very good chance that we can find somewhere else that will value us more or differently. And so we have the opportunity to kind of move and switch. And I say, that's not true of everybody. You might not be living in London. You might be living in a small town because of family commitments where there is only one employer. Um, even then, you know, there are, there are websites and there are companies that only work remotely. So there are ways of changing changing your life circumstances i'm not saying it's easy but having that mindset of um of continual improvement and owning your own um accountability and agency i think is something um that can kind of get you through and a lot of the things that people talk around in leadership and particularly around coaching is this idea of um of oh god what's the terminology now um resilience um Mm. you know because because work is tough you know you know that's why we get paid for it and that's why people get paid reasonable amounts of money for it because 
you know, for a lot of people, it's a tough environment. But delivering that resilience, developing that resilience is, is a really good skill. And one way to see resilience is a protective shell that you build up around you, that you create over time. But I think that's quite a worrying um, form of resilience because it kind of means that you, 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 you retract into yourself. Whereas I think having an owner mindset is one about kind of having agency in the world, realising the skills you have, realising the potential you have, realising the ability that if you go out there and try and make change, um, you can affect change. Not, you know, you, you know, one of the challenges I see with designers, which is actually, I think, where some of the pushback comes from. Um, as designers, we spend our whole life spotting problems. We're basically problem spotting machines. That's really great for employees, or sorry, employers, because they hire a bunch of designers. We tell them everything that's wrong with their, 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 their designs, but also maybe everything that's wrong with their organisation. Um, one of the great things about designers is we're often capable of fixing a lot of those things, but we can't fix all of those things. And the things we can't fix, we get frustrated because, hey, we told you this was a problem six months ago. Um, the difference is it's actually often quite easy to solve interface problems, particularly mm. if you're a designer and you're being tasked with that. It's actually really difficult to solve complex um, cultural problems. And so while spotting those problems might be easy, making the changes might be really, really hard. And so I think a lot of designers get really frustrated when they don't see the same speed companies, you know, uh, you know, the same speed they will have in solving an interface problem that their companies, you know, don't have when they're trying to solve big cultural problems. And so you get this kind of sort of mismatch and, and, and imbalance. But like I say, you know, if your attitude is always this is somebody else's problem, you know, they might not even know that that is a problem. There was a really great... Um, a slide going around or image going around on Twitter, you know, in the last couple of weeks around the level of problems that the board understand in their company versus the level of problems that people on the ground understand. And, you know, if, if the people on the ground understand 100% of the problems, then the leaders, I think it was something like 70 or 80% of the problems. But if you go up to board level, I think it was something crazy like 4% of the problems. Yeah. So you've, so you've got this whole group of people that assume for whatever reason, that the people in charge have this sort of prescient kind of, you know, view across everything that's going on in the organisation and are deliberately avoiding solving those problems. There's also this view that somehow when you get into a senior position, you suddenly have all the power um, to make these problems go away. When actually the problems just, you know, just multiply and being in a leadership position often you're, you're being hit problems all over the board. You only have a, a, enough kind of resources and mental capacity to kind of like, you know, fight a few fronts. And so it takes, it takes time for, for organisations to change. And so I think designers can be quite impatient about that, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the ladder that you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, I, I remember seeing that um, at Leading Design. Uh, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. On that subject, sorry, there's a great story I saw. I can't remember the name of the guy, so you might need to dig it out of Google. But I saw this guy speak who was a, a submarine commander. And basically his story was he got dumped in a submarine he knew nothing about. And so he would go up to his, his staff and his staff would assume that he had all the information. And that was the old model of leadership. You know, the leader would have all the information and you would have a piece of the information. And so when he would go and ask the the you know the person manning the helm like what happens if that if you press that button the guy because it's always a guy the guy that was being told that thought it was a test and he was like you know trying to find the right answer in reality the ship's captain didn't have a clue and what he got his team to do is switch the model on its head so rather than expecting the ship captain to know every, everything he knew nothing and he would ask the the team questions and the team would go i don't know and he'd go well like 
why don't you press the button and see what happens? And they would press <laughs> the button and then and then the ship didn't blow up and it was like, okay. And so it's this idea of rather than rather than devolving responsibility onto somebody else, taking taking ownership of, of your actions. And so he created um, a different ladder, um, which is sort of similar to the accountability ladder, but makes it slightly less um, judgy. So basically yeah. his ladder is something along the lines of, you know, um, what you you know what you expect from your team and and the bottom of the ladder is like what should i do and then you know further up it's like i have been doing then i have done and and right. it kind of is a nice way of kind of bringing accountability um and agency back into your teams yeah there are a couple of things that i thought about when you were talking there the first is <clears throat> i suppose the that there is uh, a tension between this kind of ownership mindset and and the designer ego and and to call it the designer ego there's almost definitely an ego in every industry and every uh craft but for for us designers it is particularly acute i think and protecting that ego at all costs and, and coming across like the expert in the room when it comes to all things design or ux uh, is something that is kind of inbred into you it's it's really important to to be able to establish that. I don't know if it's as a result of maybe a, a lack of recognition in other ways um, for the design. You know, design being seen as a service too often. But actually, an ownership mindset. If you truly care about the end result and you own the end result, and um, if the end result fails, then it's on you. Then you want as much data as possible, and you want to find out whether you're succeeding or failing but it's very painful and hard to do that and and everyone goes through that journey of of being wanting to be seen as the expert and and not wanting to get the feedback and and um only showing the final product and all that kind of thing to mm. to recognizing the need for quick feedback and 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 admitting when they're wrong having their opinion changed being okay with that mm. i think designers and developers um have huge amounts of agency in their work much more than most other people most other people that are just doing admin jobs are a small cog in a in a huge machine and and they're moving one bit of paper from from one pile to another and they don't see the effect they have on the world designers and developers often have that ability to see the effect immediately in code you you know you write a few lines and, and something appears on screen and then you ship it and hundreds or thousands or millions of people get to see it um the same is true of design. So design has huge agency and huge ownership. And most of the designers I know, and particularly the great designers, they care really, really deeply for delivering, you know, a great product. And that is like being the owner of your, you know, the interface, your, you know, your product. And so I think it comes a lot sort of more naturally to to designers and developers than a lot of other people. Right. So to, to continue that thought through into, I suppose, designing your career, if you like, the difference between constructive criticism about your strengths and weaknesses and, and really understanding where you're strong and weak and and uh, working with that data versus i suppose glossing over the <laughs> the weaknesses in your skill set uh pretending they don't exist or you know tweaking your linkedin to to make yourself appear as attractive or senior or, or whatever it is to to the, the market um, there's an interesting challenge there, I think, just in that space about breaking down some of the taboo around admitting where you're not so good at your job or or, or where there are skills within the designer skill set that you're, you're weaker at. 
Yep. I mean, again, there's the, the two things there. Um, so first off, one of the, you know, it, uh, very few people, it seems, um, that come into our industry have gone through any formal um, training. I think that's that's changing now. Obviously, there are a lot more interaction design and UX design courses out there. But back in, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the majority of people that were were coming into the industry, if they had been through a, a university degree, was some kind of graphic design course. One of the great things that graphic design teaches people is how to take criticism through uh, critique um, and basically even though it kind of sometimes feels a little bit like a hazing ritual the continual critique of your work is a great way to to make people realize that their own ego and values are not their work you know you can you can have someone critique your work and it's not critiquing you you can have someone say that this product that you've designed doesn't work for xyz reasons and i think very junior designers and actually even quite senior designers to be honest kind of have put so much of their love sweat and tears in the product and maybe they're a little bit creatively blocked maybe this was the only solution they could come up with and so when somebody comes and critiques it um they feel personally hurt they feel emotionally hurt they feel like you know that it's a value judgment on them but also more importantly because they're kind of like out of ideas they're now worried like how the hell am i gonna how am i gonna solve this problem and so they you know they they rather than kind of take that critique on board they defend the solution because they know that if the solution isn't viable they're going to really struggle to come up with the next one um but, you know, you can argue that critique is a form of creative disruption. You know, rather than jumping to the, the first and most obvious solution, um, it forces you to rethink and improve and understand and articulate and get better at what you do. And so yeah. coming from a background, I think designers that come from a background of critique are able to make that separation between themselves and their product. And I think design teams, particularly in digital um, in the digital space, need to grow critique internally um, so that you know people are aware that they're not individually being um, challenged, their work is, and, and have that separation. Um, so I think I think that's really important. You talked about measuring your success over a longer period of time and in a more nebulous realm. When you when you start to actually, you were talking about it in the in the context of solving organizational issues rather than solving interface issues. But I think mm. the same is also true of moving from. Uh, managing pixels to managing people in terms of i suppose your your a movement into management and uh definitely one thing that i found was hard was actually the decisions you're making as someone who's leading a team rather than uh building the interfaces you don't have those days where you can put your headphones on and at the end of the day you have something that makes everyone go wow you know <laughs> and you don't have um data coming in through the dashboards telling everyone that the decisions mm. you made were excellent there really isn't very much data at all a lot of the time and and that data comes in the form of things that is sometimes hard to even recognize uh, and you don't know what the uh, the b version of the test that you were going to run was um yeah. and and you're measuring that over quarters or even years so being comfortable with that level of um ambiguity and your your the result of the decisions you make being frankly unclear as to whether they were successful or not this is uh, just an interesting kind of uh, similar um, i suppose analogy yeah i mean it's it's really tough it's really tough for designers who are moving from practice into management because as you say when you when you're working in practice you are producing a very very obvious tangible output that you can see that you can touch you can interact with you can stick online and people will will, will um will, you know will use 
and you get a huge amount of self like personal satisfaction from doing that as soon as you move into management the the thing that you are creating is not easy to see it's culture it's you know a thousand little tiny decisions that over a course of weeks months years or career map into um into something bigger um it's almost i mean i don't have kids i have no plans of having kids but it and also i'm kind of conscious that i don't want leadership to be seen as a as a kind of parental thing because i think that is actually maybe a little bit of a toxic uh, analogy but um when you become a parent um, of a small child, often you give up all of the things um, that that you focused on yourself in order to look after this other person. So you know, maybe you you stop going out, you stop going drinking, you stop going clubbing, you stop you know you know going and having long brunches in the morning, and you know a lot of your resources and a lot of your time is spent looking after somebody else's well being, and. For a lot of people, particularly young parents, that can be really challenging because it's a fundamental life shift. But what happens is over the years, you see these human beings growing up and they're amazing people and they go off and do amazing things and they go to university and they get jobs and they have relationships. And what happens is you look back at the people that you've grown and you have a real strong sense of, of you know, well, well-being and self-worth. And so that's, you know, I think that's very, very similar to being a, a design leader. Um, you are growing teams of amazing human beings and they might not even look back and, and, and realise the amount of, you know, uh, impact you've had on their career. But when you see people moving on for your team and going and leading teams at Google or Facebook or Twitter, um, going on and having speaking careers, going on and writing books, you can't help but feel proud that you played a small but important part in their lives. And so that's what you get, I think, as a leader, is you end up you end up living vicariously through others. You know, if your team do an amazing job, you didn't do it, but you created the environment that, that allowed that to happen. But you have to be good at doing that. You have to be good at gaining enjoyment through other people. And if you are very kind of like ego focused, sadly, you often end up becoming one of those toxic managers that makes it all about them, that takes other people's ideas and claims it was theirs, you know, that talks over people in meetings, you know, that you've got your female colleague that came up with the idea, but when it comes to pitching it, you take it and and deliver it as if you're own and everyone's around the table or the, you know, the people that came up around the table are thinking like, you're just, you're just trampling on me. Um, You see a lot of managers that, you know, as soon as they get into management, only start sucking up to their bosses because they're now on a career track and don't really care about their teams and that's a horrible mode of management that's the kind of the classic kind of top of the pyramid form of management and the form of management i like is more around servant leadership um where you there's this kind of model is a book called the uh, orbiting the big giant hairball which is a crazy name and it's about um it's one of my favorites is it oh fantastic and they use the analogy of like being a leader is like being a tree you know you're the trunk you're the roots and you're the branches that are pushing your team up to the sun and your team are the kind of the fruit that, that are absorbing the, the 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 nutrients and the sun by you having pushed them up. Um, and and yeah, you, you have to, as a leader, kind of swap around into that kind of, sort of mindset to be supporting other people. But if you can do that and if you can enjoy it, it's great. But there's no guarantee that you will. And lots of people that move into management, you know, probably make a terrible decision. In fact, I think this is why so many companies have so many bad managers, because yeah. they take people that don't want to be managers, but want the the money and the um, the status that comes with it. And, and they're doing a terrible job. And actually, a lot of the people that would be the best managers are often the ones that are the most cautious and nervous about it. So you get this idea of the Peter Principle, where people get you know elevated to the level of their own incompetence. 
and yeah. it's frustrating, you know, and it's really frustrating for teams when they see people rise up the ranks who they know are not very good but are playing a political game, but there are other people in the team that you think, well, they'd be much better at this job. Um, but that's because they're giving themselves to the team. They're not egocentrically, you know, pushing their own own agenda forward. So it, it can be challenging. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to get on to design titles, and this is something that you've been very vocal about throughout well, for for at least a couple of years. Um, for for too every, long, I think you're trying yeah, to say. <laughs> yeah. Every so often there is, um, I suppose, something flares up on Twitter, an interesting conversation or, or, or somewhere in the blogosphere around, uh, for example, the, the two-letter acronyms of, of UX mm. and, uh, and what it means to be a UX designer versus a product designer and what are all the skills that go into each of these and, and how do you know which you are and uh, is it unfair to label different people as such and I'm just mm. wondering out of all of that I suppose I'm interested in anything that you've seen that you think might be an opportunity to solve this and even whether it's a problem that needs to be solved okay so I mean I think yeah really interesting uh, questions there so first off the reason I kind of end up wandering into these arguments which often actually don't do me any good is because I care <laughs> deeply I care deeply about our industry I care deeply about the people in it. I care deeply about the language we use. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of marching into this weird Trumpian world where nobody has a belief in truth anymore. And everything is, is so debated to the point that people just give up and, and, and stop caring. And I don't want that to be the case with design. I don't want designers, senior or junior, to stop caring about this profession because I think it's a profession that has an opportunity to do huge good around the world and there are there are there are tons and tons of people who work in this industry um the reason that i feel passionate about this again like you know as a senior practitioner as a senior designer it it, it really has no influence on me and actually this is a lot of the pushback i get you know from people on twitter is like oh why are we having this conversation again you know i've been doing this for 10 years and it doesn't matter and, and my kind of response is usually it doesn't matter to you because you are at a point in your career where actually you've seen the matrix you know that everything is just designed we're all interconnected and that's lovely for you you know um, but there are tons of people who are coming out of courses, you know, university degrees, general assembly degrees, um, degrees, sorry, general assembly courses, people that have paid maybe £10,000 for a GA course, or people that are maybe £50,000, £100,000 in debt because they studied interaction design or UX design at college. And then they, you know, day one, they've got their graduated degree, they go online to kind of, you know, embrace this whole new world that they've just joined into, and they see lots of people arguing about whether the thing they studied has any worth at all or even if it exists. Now, if I'd spent 100k on a degree, and then I saw a bunch of people telling me, oh, UX isn't a thing, design isn't a thing, interaction design isn't a thing, it's all the same, it's all different, you know, job titles are meaningless, etc, etc. I would be confused, and I get a lot of confused emails from people emailing me directly, and a lot of conversation I have with people saying, look, I, you, know, I'm, you know, I've been doing this for like six months, 18 months, a couple of years. I just, you know, I just want to get my next job and I don't know what to call myself. And it's all very well if you're a senior, you know, 20 year practitioner to go, oh, job titles are meaningless, but not to people who are 18 years in. I've met so many people who have um, accepted jobs based on a job title and description where when they started working there, 
there was a fundamental difference between what they thought they were being employed to do and what they were actually being employed to do. And the level of skills and interest they had fundamentally differed from the level of skills um, that the company was wanting. And it was all around confusions around what different words mean. And so mm. I think it's really important to have specificity because otherwise we're, we're throwing a whole new generation of designers under a bus because we can't make up our minds. And so that, that really concerns me. Um, it, 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 it kind of concerns me sort of less and less as I get older, mostly because I've, you know, I've, been, I've been trying to fight for clear definitions of our industry for many, many years. And every time I do this, you know, it, it just becomes, you know, people start poking fun. Oh, it's design Twitter having a meltdown. Oh, it's defining the damn thing. Oh, I don't care. But again, like I say, you know, most of these people are coming from positions of privilege where, of course, it doesn't matter to them. Um, yeah. But but it just, you know, I kind of, you know, it, it gets it just makes me sad that people don't want to, you know, have a have an intellectually rigorous sort of conversation around stuff that matters to young people. Um, also, I think it's complicated by the fact that, um, you know, the world is large and maybe what people call interaction designers in California are different from what they call them in Germany. Or maybe, you know, a product designer, I believe, in London is probably a different beast to a product designer in in New York or Seattle. And so these little communities have grown up where we've got this shared language, but we've got actually different meanings. It's the whole classic idea. I can't remember who said it. It was probably like a Churchill quote or somebody like that that said, you know, the US and the UK are two countries separated by common language. And I think the UX community or design community, whatever you want to call it, are often the same. The thing that I'm arguing for that is a UX designer and a, and a front, uh, you know, product designer in the UK might be different from you know what my colleagues in in Seattle or San Francisco see as the same thing. So rather than just having lots more circular arguments, what I actually did at the weekend is set up a survey. So I threw up a survey um, using Google Forms. It's had about 400 people respond to it at the moment. And I ask a few simple questions. I ask people how they describe themselves. And I gave a list of like 10, you know, relatively common job titles. I asked them the sort of the five key skills that they do on a daily basis. And then all the other skills they use. And I asked them where they came from, roughly in the world, and what type of organisation they work for, whether there's a, they're a startup or an agency. Because mm-hmm. I kind of, I suspect that there are weird patterns here. I suspect that, you know, agencies in the UK use ux to mean one thing whereas in-house teams in in asia maybe you use it to to mean a completely different thing and so i'm just trying to get an understanding of like whether there is any consistency in in language use um and if there is then we can go okay well actually 70 percent of the respondents said that you know this set of skills if you've got these core set of skills you're a product designer and if you've got these core set skills you're an interaction designer if you've got these set of skills you're a ux designer and then you know um let's at least use that as a basis for for having kind of discussions in the future because otherwise it just becomes arguing you know um how many what is it how many camels you can get through the eye of a pin or something like that you know it becomes a a constantly pointless conversation with this having some data behind it even if it's only a data point of 500 might lead to a slightly more nuanced conversation so that's what i'm doing at the moment whether any any sense will come out of it or whether it will just be you know whether whether any patterns will form or whether it's just a mishmash of no consensus around titles and jobs and skills who knows but i'm interested to delve into that data when i will find time so are you you, is there a magic number you want to hit before you will start um 
Not really. I mean, I you know, I, I think it would be it, it would be great to get a thousand respondents. So I've got three or four hundred so far. I'm probably yeah. going to leave it up to the end of the week and see what happens. Um, I am so busy um, over the next couple of months. I probably won't have time to actually interrogate the data probably until Christmas. I've got. Um, I just came back uh, from a retreat in Norway. I took twenty. Uh, academics, uh, designers for big tech companies, researchers over to the hotel where they filmed Ex Machina to have a retreat to discuss the future of AI and how that relates to both the digital design industry and also basically humanity and, and, uh, and mankind in general. And so that was really, really busy. Next week, we've got Leading Design, which is our, yeah, our design leadership conference. Um, I've then got a couple of other events I'm speaking at. I do... Um, these uh, host these leadership dinners, um, design leadership dinners for Envision. So we're doing another one of those, I think, in Stockholm. I'm speaking at a conference in Berlin, Beyond Telerand, which is really, really good. I'm looking forward to that. I'm doing a a workshop on design thinking over there. That's another kind of hot Twitter topic. A lot of people think design thinking is bullshit. I think it's probably bullshit as well. But (laughs) But irrespective of it being bullshit, I think it's powerful. And again, this is another one of the things that comes down to language. You know, designers might hate the term design thinking because we've been thinking for all of our careers and it feels really patronising. But, you know, Harvard Business Review has been touted design thinking for at least the last five or ten years. And this is a terminology that's got traction in the boardroom. So whether we think it's valuable or not, I want designers to be using the language of design thinking to get design in the boardroom because we've got 10, 20 years experience doing that. What I'm seeing at the moment is, is MBAs who have done a one semester course in design thinking and have gone to go and work for a big tech, you know, big consultancy like McKinsey now teaching board level people how to design. And I think that's wrong. And I think it's largely wrong because while we're debating and designing whether deciding whether design thinking is a term that has value, other more business savvy groups have decided it has value and is actually extracting that value. And right. so we might find ourselves waking up one day where design has just purely been relegated to delivery because smarter, more business savvy people than us have actually done the hard work to have the conversations with the board level that we would love to be having, but frankly aren't at the moment. Right. I think with, with design thinking and also the that uh, the lexicon of of all of this design thinking UX etc etc product design that, that I suppose there's inevitability that uh, whether it's the board or whether it's the people making hiring decisions in all of these companies are going to use frankly the terms that they want to use so you mm. have to you have to get on the boat and hope hope to steer that boat rather than uh, ignore the boat entirely and hope that it, this is a terrible analogy <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um to an extent we have to embrace the things that are already happening and, and work out to use them to our advantage rather than uh hope that sometime that uh, sometime in the future the boardroom or whoever it is will realize the the true um nature of things and have kind of an existential yeah. realization that to our I- favor yeah, and this is and this is again. This goes back to one of my challenges with the term UX. Weirdly, you know, I think I think I think design thinking is is respected a lot more outside the design industry than inside. And I kind of think I speak to you know ten years ago when we started Clear Left, people clients didn't have a clue what UX was. Now we've got clients asking for this service. 
and asking for it from a whole range of different people. And then we've got the design industry then lecturing them about what it means and what it doesn't mean. And so I think, you know, we... And then what happens is they, they hire these people in who they think are UX designers but probably aren't. And then that shapes and changes and morphs their view of what UX is. And often it's... I think it's coming to the point now that a lot of a lot of people that are hiring teams are going, well, actually, this UX thing is Emperor's New Clothes because all the people I've hired in are basically just web designers, you know, um, you know, old school web designers. Like, where is the magic? Where is the amazing stuff that, that, that these people are meant to be doing? And right. so I think, we, I think we've poorly sold in what some of these techniques are. The same, you know, whether it's product design or product management or, you know, so many product managers are basically just reformed project managers. Um, and it's not the same. And so if you're, if you, if you, you know, suddenly like, you know, two years ago, set up a product management sort of team in your company, you fill it with project managers. And then two years later, you go, well, actually, nothing's changed. Well, right. maybe nothing's changed, not because you changed the title, but because you didn't fill it with the people that, um, that you needed to do to do the job you were expecting. And that's not to dismiss project managers, because project managers are amazing. But project managers aren't product managers, and product managers aren't project managers. They're not the same. And actually, right. in most organisations, you need to have a, a mix of both. But you need to understand have the fluency of language. You need to have the hiring team that can bring the right people in place yeah. to to really get the, the outcome that you're expecting. And if you don't have that outcome, don't write mm. off um, a whole discipline because you've accidentally hired the wrong people. Absolutely. Actually, to hark back to a, a conversation that we had probably a couple of years ago around not so much project versus product managers, but designers that work in agencies versus uh, in-house in in-house uh, tech companies. And we talk. I remember us talking about how the challenges with switching from an agency side designer to more of a an in-house designer and and vice versa and and how it's kind of hard to hire if you're sitting in-house to hire a, an agency uh, designer and 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 for you kind of hard to f- find an in-house designer that really fits the bill i wonder if there is a distinct set of skills or or a discrete set of skills that you can describe that would potentially sum that up or ways around it for people that do want to make that switch I mean, I think I think there's a big grass is always greener kind of thing. You know, people that move from agency to in-house often, um, you know, are saying like, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying working on these projects in six months stints, but I never see it all the way through. And so I want to go in-house because I want to, you know, I want to, you know, I want to see the fruits of my labour. I want to see this product live. I want to see people using it. I want to be able to iterate on that. And that's a that's an incredibly worthy um, and understandable goal. But then I talk to a lot of people in-house. And they're like, look, I've been working on this same product for two and a half years. Um, nothing's changed. I've only shipped about a third of what I wanted to. Um, you know, I'm being so bogged down. I really want to go somewhere where I can just you know, design and have a load of variety of different challenges. And so, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who are used to having a big variety of challenges want the security of of a of an understandable product. A lot of people that have been working on a product for three or four years want to jump out and, and have that sort of flexibility and fluidity and ability to move a lot faster. Um, so I don't think they're necessarily different skills. I think they might be different mindsets. Um, right. I think, you know, you know, some people want to, you know, there's kind of this whole, uh, I'm not sure if you come across the idea of like pioneers, settlers and town planners. It's a um, Stephen Wardley, I think his name, Simon Wardley, sorry, um, uh, of Wardley Maps fame, um, has created this sort of model of, of pioneer settlers and town planners. And it kind of makes sense to me, you know, in, in an agency setting, 
you need a ton of pioneers. Um, people who want to chart new ground, chart new territory. But these are not the kind of people or mindset that want to settle down, that want to extract value from the ground. And so in an agency, you need that pioneering mindset. You also need that pioneering mindset at an early stage startup. You want people to chart new ground, discover new lands. Um, as your startup grows, you need to, you know, you're going to find that actually those those pioneers are becoming a bit of a problem because they just want to keep going and find the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And actually, if you're going to build a successful startup, you need to start maybe letting some of those pioneers go elsewhere and start filling up your your company with settlers. And settlers are people that want to stay in one place for a long time, but they really enjoy extracting value. Because as, as a startup, that's kind of what you need. You want people that can, you know, not just, you know, build shonky code, but but really build code <laughs> that's going to scale. You want yeah. people that, you know, that are not just ideas people, but actually can take a, a product and finesse it and tweak it until it's as optimised as possible. And in that instance, you also need a bunch of town planners because... Um, you need to make sure that the, the tools and the structure are in place, the fire engines, the water, the electricity that's plugged in, so that these settlers can actually, you know, uh, you know make a good go of it. Um, I think in a lot of big organisations that have been around for 100 years, traditional companies, they are predominantly town planners. You know, it becomes a management exercise. You know, they've already optimised their their offering to such a point that, that they don't need an awful lot of, of, of settlers. They're trying to do innovation, but actually um, pioneers hate working in those kind of environments. Either they hive them off into some kind of innovation lab where they kind of like, you know, it's like the kids running the, 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 the sort of um, the daycare centre um, or, or people get frustrated and leave. Um, I think in large organisations, particularly as digitals come in, they need to reassess the role of the, the settlers. You need to bring more people into these organisations that are going to stick around for longer, are going to really help you nail the growing um, digital platform you're building on top of your, your physical platform, whether it's a, it's a, a supermarket or a, you know, a, a hotel business or whatever, um, travel business. Um, and so I think it's kind of sort of mindsets. And I think it takes probably you to wander around to a few different kinds of organisations to figure out really whether you are a settler, uh, like a, a pioneer or a town planner. And also it might be there's people grow old, um, you know, they want to change from one to another because constantly right. being at the forefront of, 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 you know, trapping through the bush and finding new towns can be really, really tiring. And sometimes you just might want to you know, eventually sort of settle down somewhere and, and grow roots. So I think it's less yeah. about skill set. I think it's about propensity to get bored, willingness to kind of work at a slower place. I think if you're working internally, you need to be a lot more political. I mean, this is a challenge. Like one of the things that's great about working in a design agency is we are spending 80% of our time designing and 20% of our time doing the politics that you need to move the barriers out of the way. And we can do that because we know that we're only going to be in a company for maybe six months, maybe nine months, maybe 18 months tops. But you can run at speed for that yeah. long and kind of start moving barriers out of the way. If you're going to be somewhere for three, four, five years, the skills you need are political. And actually most internal design teams, which is a, which is a shame really, but they might spend 20 to 40% of the time actually doing design. And the other 60% creating the space and moving the barriers out of the way that allows them to do that and a lot of it is just cross-coordination you know right. in order to get that button launch you know you can't just design it and stick it up there you have to talk to the product manager you have to talk to the product owner you have to negotiate with the tech team has to go on their backlog etc etc so things naturally slow down 
Yeah. And some people are comfortable in that, that pace and that space and they aren't. The thing that worries me at the moment is I think, um, I think agencies are feeders for startups and feeders for big companies. You know, I think one of the reasons why we've got such a buoyant startup and um, internal team culture in the UK is because, you know, five, ten years ago, we had an incredibly vibrant agency model. And people would go and they would learn their craft in the agencies. They'd work there for two, three years. They'd work on five or ten projects. And that then meant that when they came into their first in-house company, they had done three, four, five, six big redesigns. Um, nowadays, I see a lot of people coming straight out of university or general assembly, going straight into a large company where they might have never done a big redesign, or this might be their first one and their second one. You know, you'll see people who have got six, seven-year careers who have been with two companies and done two major reimaginings of their their product if they're lucky. And so, if you've got someone with six years' experience has done that twice versus six years' experience has done that twenty times, the person that's done it twenty times is naturally going to have more affinity and ability to figure out what's wrong and what's not going to work and what's going to work if you take that away if you if you destroy the agency world um then i think we're going to be having having problems in the future and the way i see it's kind of like i don't know if you know much about kind of ocean um ecology but you've got these mangrove forests and the mangrove forests are where the little tiny creatures little tiny fish live and they can hide from all the big creatures so they don't get eaten and they grow and they grow and they grow and when they get to a certain size they go to the coral reefs and the coral reefs are this massive profusion of life Um, and i think the big companies and the startups are like the coral reefs um but i think the agency world and maybe the the smaller startups are the mangrove forests and i think Mm -hmm. if you destroy the mangrove forests there's nowhere for these young fish to grow and, and, and and learn their craft and survive and that then destabilizes the the, the mangrove reefs. Oh, so the the the, the, coral, the coral reefs. And yeah. so I think I think we need as an industry and as a culture to put a lot more focus on growing new staff and new talent and creating places where they can thrive in safe spaces where they can they can cycle through dozens and dozens of problems really really quickly so that when they actually go and go into the big open ocean when they go to the coral reefs they're they're resilient and experienced and stress tested and, and kind of can can deal with the challenges that are being faced with them yeah i mean it's a, i think it's definitely a whole other topic to getting into design education and and how will that sets people up for uh, for then the the big open ocean as you say but yeah developing i suppose academies i think you're right that that your ability to learn and the requirement to learn fast in a very small company either a small agency where there is a client with expectations and a deadline and and you've got to get that done or whether uh, you're in a small company where uh, the buck stops with you even though you have very little experience you're going to learn very fast in that situation whereas if you're protected by you know layers of management above you and teammates around you then then it's going to be harder to really get that exposure i see most job ads as asking for we want somebody with a minimum of three years experience so where are people going to get that naught to three years experience if you're a large organization it's going to be much better and also because there's so little of those people there's a bidding war um, and it's really expensive if you're a large organization with 10 20 30 40 designers maybe 100 designers you're going to be much better off 
taking people that have got naught to six months or 18 months experience that have just graduated that have been in a few universities so been in a few um small tech companies or agencies or maybe even freelancing and create a training program that trains those people up to be the kind of designers that you want and so right. i think over the next you, i'm seeing this a lot in the us i'm seeing a lot of big agencies and tech companies now initiate training programs for their designers ibm have done have done a great job here and i think i'm going to see more and more people you know in the uk really really focusing on on training teams up because you yeah. know you know, there aren't enough three-year-plus experienced people to go around. And this is why, you know, progression frameworks are really good. Understanding where people fit on that on that framework, but also making sure you've got a pipeline of talent. Make sure that when your three, four, five, six-year experienced person that's level three or four disappears, you've got someone yeah. that's naught to two, three years that's level one, two, and three that can kind of step up and take their place. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a real, there's a real challenge around... Uh, companies not feeling like they can, they can or want to support uh, a graduate or someone who is is freshly cut, um, and really what that person needs is mentorship so so much. Um, but at their their price point, uh, they're probably most attracted to the companies that can support them the least. You know, the, the very small mm. ones. So, um, encourage the thing, tech companies to. You know, if you if you're sorry for butting, cutting you off there, but if you're someone that's got three, four years experience and you're looking for forty, fifty, sixty thousand um, pounds, that's really expensive. It'd be much better for that organisation to hire two or three people that are, you know, are straight out of university and looking for twenty or thirty thousand pounds. Mm-hmm. Invest half a year training them up, and and, and you'll have people that you know that are going to want to stick around for a long time because they're learning you know like i say the reason most people leave companies is because they've stopped learning so if you build a learning culture in your organization not only will you keep those young people but you keep those more senior people not least because you're going to be getting those more senior people to be training up that next generation and so they're going to be enjoying that process they're going to be getting self-validation they're going to be learning and so it becomes a even though on the paper on paper it might look a bad financial decision i think three or four years after you've instituted a program like this it actually it really does pay dividends um yeah because it, it lowers your it, it increases your retention increases staff happiness um it lowers your recruitment costs but also and this is one of the kind of the dirty little secrets i'm, I'm afraid that you get with with in-house teams is actually a lot of the work is pretty sort of mind-numbing a lot of the work is basically just moving pixels around and it's not satisfying if you've got six seven years experience and you're wanting to do you know strategy and so we actually do need companies do need the the naught to three four years designers that want to kind of hone their craft and don't mind doing um maybe some of the kind of like taking out the trash element of design work as long as they are being paired up with an amazing mentor that will show them all the amazing things that they could do in the future so i think we're missing a trick here and it's why people people switch jobs every 18 months um Andy, I think I just got your little, uh, got the little quote for the start of the show. Well done. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, man. I, um, I love chatting to you. I love sharing this stuff with people. And um, yeah, I look forward to uh, catching up in Meet Space very soon. Absolutely. And good luck with leading design next week. I'm sure you'll smash Cheers, it. Cheers, man. It's going to be a blast. Can't wait. <laughs>